0: I'm Zach Dunlap, pastor of Multi-Site at Birmingham and Berkeley First. Welcome to Church Folks, the new podcast where we interview folks from our church community about who they are and what God is doing in their lives. Throughout the Bible, people are encouraged to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Continuing in that tradition, this podcast offers a forum for people to get to know one another and be inspired. Our hope is that the stories of these church folks empower you to share your stories, to inspire others, and to be a part of beloved community together. I am here today with Gabe Irvin. Gabe, tell us a little about yourself.:
1: Well, as I already stated, my name is Gabriel Irvin I. I've been a member of the First United Methodist Church since I was confirmed, and I've been attending the First United Methodist Church in Birmingham and uh, Berkeley First since I was, uh, I think, since I was born, pretty much. Uh, I'm currently a freshman, about to be a sophomore as soon as the summer ends, at the University of Michigan. Uh, I was a counselor at our church's choir camp, which is always a lot of fun. Uh, and other than that, I'm just very happy to be here right now uh, doing this interview.
0: How did it feel to be back in the action with choir camp this year after everything kind of took a pause last year?
1: Uh, It felt really great. I was really happy. Uh, This was my first year as a counselor. Uh, And uh, well, my first year on site as a counselor, we did it at the church. We had a little one last year, Well, we didn't go up the whole week, we went at the end. and It was still a lot of fun last year. But this year, it was really back into the experience like it normally is. And I was very grateful to have that loving, comforting space back, especially with my church family.
0: Absolutely. And and Gabriel, what are you studying at the University of Michigan?
1: I'm going to be studying political sciences and religion.
0: That's fantastic. How This is a very broad question, and you can take this however you want, in whatever direction you want. But how have you experienced God at work in your life?
1: I think one of the ways that I've experienced God at work, and this is very important to me, is... uh, when at camp, when ministering to the children, when ministering to high schoolers, when ministering to middle schoolers, and even uh, younger than that, fourth and fifth graders, it's important that you can relate God to them in every aspect of their life. And I think one of the most important messages, especially for high schoolers, I would say, especially because they've had such a tough run of it going COVID in and out back into school, not into school with masks, without masks, it's been very difficult for them. And it's very important that they know that God loves them. And so that's a message that, needs to be reiterated in different ways to that audience. And that's one of the things that I enjoyed is uh, when teaching Bible studies, we had a few other groups join in for our Bible studies. Um, We had these larger Bible studies. and It was very important that everyone felt comfortable saying their piece. And after a few days, they did. They all felt comfortable in front of each other. They felt comfortable talking about God, about faith and about struggles with each other. Uh, And that really meant a lot to me that they were comfortable. So when ministering to children, especially high schoolers, it's important that you reiterate that message of love, uh, especially when the times get tough, especially even when times are easy. But especially with the tough times now, it's important they know that And I think uh, any way that you can relay that message is always a winner.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there are definitely tough times in this life. And I'm I'm curious, when have you personally felt closest to God? When have you personally felt furthest from God?
1: I think closest, I would say definitely at camp every year. It's very great. It's very great to associate, to get that fellowship, to be close with everyone and for everyone to feel accepted and loved. And when everyone is in that good, positive attitude, when everyone feels that way, and even if some people aren't feeling that way, you can help them feel that way. And when you have that community of love, it's very easy to feel God right there guiding you through everything through your actions, words—it's very good. And farthest, I'd probably say, uh, probably during the pandemic at a certain time, I recall the second half of my senior year of high school uh, was very quickly taken away from me, and that was, a, you know, obviously not a not an encouraging thing. Uh, and obviously, that leads to a lot of uh, questions. You know, the old "Why me? Why me? Why me?" But you know. It's important during those times, especially if you have a roof over your head, if you have meals, if you have clean water, that you have those things, that you have the basics that God has provided you with these, and that you have been so lucky to have these things. Uh, And so that's one of the ways that I think about it. I look for God in places. I look for God in, not only in uh, religion, not only in faith, but in other areas too, because you can find God in sciences, you can find God in nature, uh, especially in nature. You can take a walk outside through the forest and you see God's hand in the creation of all this beauty. It's not lined up, it's not symmetrical, it's not measured out, but still it's perfect. You look outside, you look at the trees, the birds, they're perfect and it's beautiful. And that's how I—that's kind of how i reconnected to God through the pandemic as I went on these long walks with my friends through the forest. And you learn a lot just by walking through the forest and gazing at God's creations.
0: So encountering God, not just in, you know, so-called sacred spaces, but but in the sacredness of the everyday.
1: Absolutely. And the sacredness of the environment and the sacredness of other people, you find these moments and God presents himself uh, to you in those moments. And it's fantastic.
0: You've spoken to this a little bit already, but I'd love for you to expound what value do you find in being a part of Christian community?
1: I think it's important that we have Christian community because it builds you in your faith because you are able to reflect, you're able to share your happiness, your sadness, your doubts, your concerns, and everything in between with this community. And there are people younger than you and there are people older than you. So you get to have the wisdom experience, but also the innocence and calmness at the other end. Uh, sometimes the best wisdom, the best advice you can get is from children. Uh, and sometimes the sometimes you need the more heavy advice from the adults. And so being a part of Christian community and fellowship allows you, number one, to make these connections to hopefully impact others, but also to be impacted. And so when you have this strong, tight-knit community, you are able to feel loved and you are able to be vulnerable, which I think is very important in these days, especially for younger people and everyone else.
0: I'm hearing in what you're saying too, a a need both for like generation specific ministry, but also for intergenerational ministry.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the times that I learned the most, and I was the youngest person here, but I learned a lot, is when I went to uh Dr. Uh, Carl Price's class about the book of John, and he would uh he made the joke that you're the youngest person here by about 40 years. (laughs) And and I would say, well, then I guess I have a lot to learn. And, you know, you get these views, uh, a lot of different theological views from a lot of different people. And, you know, there was a wide age variation. There were people who were, you know, obviously they're older than 50, but, you know, 50 to 80 is a big range. And so they had all these sorts of different views. A lot of different people came from different denominations. And a lot of them had different views about different points of theology from that. And so, even as you know, even though that was just adults and and me, I learned a lot there, not only by what they were thinking, but by their experiences. They had this wealth of knowledge and experiences in different situations they had experienced. And I was able to soak up and absorb not only the theology from the wonderful Dr. Price, but also the experience, the stories, the, you know, in some cases, the tragedy that people who are older than me have gone through. Was a lot to learn, and I think I benefited greatly from that class.
0: I think being able to listen to and gain insight from the experiences of others is such a profound life skill. Uh, maybe especially in this era of polarization that we're, that we're in right now, to be able to listen and empathize to one another and and legitimately hear each other. That's one of the gifts that I think we have as United Methodists is, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, where we we do our theology through scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And each of us has different experiences that we bring to the table in that.
1: I absolutely agree, and that was one of the things that was emphasized during camp this year. I always bring that up is that I made by campers memorize the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, uh, and uh, you know we learned all sorts of things like that. But I do think it's very important to be able to apply uh, faith not only with the Scripture, not only with the tradition, but also reason, experience. All those things are very good: uh, tradition, reason, experience, Scripture. I always remember I always remember that in that order because it's trees without an extra e. i love that (laughs) and so it's very important not only to reflect on the scripture because it's easy not easy but it is easier to read the scripture than it is to apply the scripture to read what other people have written about scripture uh i always look when i'm confused uh about something in the bible when i don't understand it i often look to the church fathers back in the day you know some of the first people to know uh the word of the lord and so that was very interesting to me i see over your shoulder you have a little icon Two little icons
0: oh yeah see? i've got a whole uh so our listeners can't see but i'm sitting in my church office and even though berkeley first doesn't have a whole lot of uh churchy stuff around my office definitely does <laughs> all different uh, icons and uh all the smells and bells and that kind of stuff
1: and that's often stuff that i you know i like to collect icons too i have a few they're not here with me right now but i have uh the virgin de guadalupe which was uh hand painted uh in mexico and it was very nice it's only about this big but it's very nice i have one bigger one that the uh this russian woman that i've met in england of all places was making and those are very cool and then i have a last one that i bought here i'm in california right now uh down the street where there was i think they were turkisher uh, i think they were a turkish couple owned a store and they had this beautiful mural of saint george and the dragon and I so I've, I've started in my own collection but yeah i often look to the church fathers uh, I read uh, last year or a few years ago, On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, uh, I read that I recommend to everyone despite, you know, <laughs> despite the, uh, it's a little bit much, it's definitely written in an older style, but I think right. a lot of the lessons still apply today because I think a lot of Christians today, uh, when they're questioned about the nitty gritties of theology, and sometimes people will ask you that, especially, Atheists, agnostics, uh, theists, people who are lapsed in their belief might ask you not always the deeper questions, but some of the little sticking points here and there, like, why did God have to die? That's one of the most important questions that I think Christians are asked more often, more often than I think we think about, uh, especially by people from other religions who have these powerful gods that do not have to humble themselves, that do not humble themselves. And I said, well, Athanasius and many people have read Athanasius have summarized it like this: If he was, <clears throat> if he was, you know, not man, he could not comprehend us. If he was not God, he could not save us. And that's that's always been one of my favorite explanations. So, you know, and when it comes to studying our faith and when it comes to getting stronger in your faith, I recommend you know reading these older texts, talking about them with uh, your church family, talking about them. With anyone, well, anyone who wants to. Don't, don't just go up to somebody and start talking about <laughs> capnaceous. Not not a not a great conversation starter. But you know, with people you trust and love. Yeah.
0: Gabe, I think you're also the youngest person uh, to have been on the Church Folks podcast so far. You're 19, right? Yes. Okay. And I'm, I'm the youngest clergy person on staff at Birmingham and Berkeley first. And I think it's especially, uh, important for us, us younger folks to, um, to draw from that well of church history, right? The church was not born yesterday. We have a rich 2000 year history, and then the history of our Jewish spiritual ancestors that goes back even further than that. And, um, those voices also need to be brought to the table. Gabe, do you think that your experience of church life is normative for most folks in Gen Z? Why or why not?
1: Uh, I would say not not quite because, you know, there have been a lot of people, unfortunately, who have uh, gone away from the church. And I, I personally must say that I don't understand fully why that is because obviously I stayed here but I've known people who have left and come back. I've, you know, it's thinned out, my senior graduating class thinned out from the time obviously we went through confirmation. And I think it's partially because the church has tried too hard to blend in. It's tried too much to become, you know, part of the routine, but if it becomes like anything else, it's very easily supplanted. I think that the church should modernize, but it should modernize into its own distinctive identity not going trying to be something else, not trying to be a community center, not trying to be an extracurricular activity, but a place where people can come together in fellowship and community. And I think a lot of young people, and I read a statistic the other day, that young people on average now, uh, something like 75% of young people have five or less close friends. Uh, Back in the 1990s, that number was, uh, you know, only 25% of young people had or less close friends, and that's that's a disturbing statistic to me. And part of that is because, and that's why I believe a lot of people, especially in my generation and millennials, feel so alone, is because the church uh, took the step to modernize, but it took the step to modernize and blend in, not to modernize and stand out. And so I would say my church experience wasn't normal because I, I mean, unlike many people in my generation, I stayed, and I think. Some people will go away from the church because they're forced to. That's kind of unique about me is my parents never made me go to church. Um, even when I was, I mean, obviously when I was three and four, they made me when I was five and six or somewhere around there, I stopped going. And then I just came back one time. And I, I don't know what happened there, but I just stopped going for a year or two, maybe. And then I just came back and I had the benefit of having many great uh, Sunday school teachers. Mr. Wells, God rest his soul. He was my favorite Sunday school teacher. Uh, of all time, taught me so many important things. And I think building connections, especially around that 12, 13, 14 age group is crucial to the church's survival within the next you know, five years even. I think we need to reach out more. I think we need to basically show this age group that God is real, not let the other influences convince them that God isn't real, because that's kind of the in vogue thing for kids to think now, is to be atheists, is to, you know, not believe in God. And it's not necessarily based on critical thinking. Uh, as many of you who went to Birmingham first and I met this church know, uh, Jack Hansel, when he gave his uh, thing for choir camp last week, talked about how there is logic and there is reason into believing in God. And this is, uh, I know many people watch him a lot. I don't, but uh, I know this quote specifically. Stephen Colbert uh, is a Christian and... You know, he talked about how difficult it is to be a christian in his environment but one of the things he always asks when he brings atheists onto his show ricky gervais neil degrasse tyson everybody so he says now i hear you're an atheist so why is there something instead of nothing yeah and the best part is never they can never answer this question because no matter what there has to be something at the beginning always has to be something at the beginning and this is something i emphasized along with, you know, God loves you. And some people would say, well, it doesn't really matter if he doesn't exist. And I said, well, I pulled out my whiteboard and said, well, you know, you look at the laws of thermodynamics right here. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed in a closed system. And the universe is a closed system. Scientists admit that it's a closed system. And so something had to create all of the matter at the beginning of the universe. And it had to be outside of the laws of thermodynamics. And I said, neatly enough, the New Testament, tells us that God can violate the laws of thermodynamics. And I said, well, why does it say that? And I said, loaves and fishes, my friends, loaves and fishes. He takes one set amount of matter, loaf, fish, divides it, multiplies it. That, and, I said, and they said, that's really convenient. I said, it is. It's almost like he wanted us to find it. And there are other things like that. We don't know where all the antimatter is. There's supposed to be an equal amount of matter and antimatter, but if there was, there would be nothing. And so it is only by this divine miracle that we exist and obviously that's a little boring uh all that you know thermodynamics and math and
0: whatever i for the record didn't think that was boring at all i mean maybe some of our listeners are asleep right now but i thought that was i have i have preached many a message on the loaves and the fishes and god's economy of abundance but i have never thought of that until this moment as an example of god violating the laws of thermodynamics i thought that was awesome gabriel thank you for that (laughs)
1: One of the, it's one of the things that I emphasize, because I think because they have so much access to so much information, so much access to so much technology, so much access to TV, movies, documentaries, a lot of science, that it's important that we logically prove to them the existence of God. I think only if we prove the existence of God will they listen to the message, because I think sometimes what happens is they love the message. They love the message, but they don't know if God is real. And so it's, you know, kind of goes through like, yes, that's great and all, but I don't know if it's real. And so emphasize first what I always do. And that's what I did. My I gave this lecture. This is an abridged version, but it was 45 minutes the one I gave to them. To my, the people in my cabin at camp, because of my cabin, they were high schoolers and they got it. And they said, you know, that actually makes sense you know, that actually makes sense that everything has to have the beginning, the uncaused first cause. And I said, that's God. And they said, that makes sense. And, you know, from then on out, it's easier for them to accept everything else because they know, or at least they have the logical basis for believing in God. And I think that's what's evolved throughout the church's history. Before it was an emotional thing because we didn't have all this science, all this information, but now we can use science to our advantage instead of our detriment to prove the existence of God. And that's one of the things that I really have loved about studying theology in combination with studying physics.
0: I think too many people think of, of you know, science and religion as being diametrically opposed in some way, but all truth is God's truth. And it's if God did indeed create everything, which we believe uh, he did, then God created what we call the scientific method. God created um, the rules by which the universe functions. And not only is it not opposed to God or theism, but it's inextricably bound to it.
1: And I would agree is that we can see in a lot of these things uh, that we, you know, the environment, nature, I talked about that earlier, but one of the other things I always mentioned is that, Nobody thinks about this. And this is always interesting to me. And I, historians have started to redo work on this, and I've loved watching it throughout the few years. But uh, Galileo, Copernicus, the uh, heliocentric model, they didn't actually start it. Who actually started it was a Polish bishop named Nicholas of Cusa. And he found it out about 50 years earlier than everybody else, and that was sanctioned by the church. So over the past 100 years or so, there's been a narrative created that the church has always been opposed to science. When in fact, it was the church often leading science. It was Gregor Mendel, 10 years before Darwin, who figured out by cross-breeding pea plants that there was genetic descendancy. And he sent all these letters to Charles Darwin and Charles Darwin never opened them. Uh, and so there are many examples, Nicholas of Cusa, um, Gregor Mendel, uh, and many other examples uh, of Christians who have been leading the way in science, but have, this has all fallen by the wayside in recent years because the information the media everything like that have been going in this more sort of secular direction and so as i said i think it's more important that we as the church at this point especially the young people now the older people i think our message still works but i think to younger people who have grown up with this mini supercomputer in their hands who can you know watch a hundred videos about molecular biology you know in two weeks uh that we prove to them logically and I think that that's something that we haven't placed as much emphasis on uh, in recent years. We've placed a lot of re- uh, stuff on the outreach, but proving the existence of God is, in my opinion, 99.9% of the battle when it comes mm-hmm. to winning back the youth. And, yeah.
0: I was just going to uh, ask, what about, what about for you know a significant segment of the population doesn't necessarily have a problem believing in God? Um, but they have a lot of issues with um, organized religion or institutionalized faith. Um, In your opinion, what does our church or Christianity in general um, get right? And what do we need to work on or adapt in this more modern context or post post postmodern context or whatever you want to call it?
1: Neo postmodern, whatever. (laughs) Exactly. I I think that there, in the modern church, that our organization—I think our organization is relatively good. I think it should be slimmed down. Now, there's a joke amongst every Christian community that Methodists always form committees to find out why there are too many committees, Uh, and and I I think that we're a little bit guilty of that. So maybe slimming down the organization might be important. But I think in the modern context, the organization—what can the church improve on? Structure. I think that in a lot of times structure is a good thing but i think it needs to be a well-run structure i think slimming down the organization getting rid of bureaucracy unnecessary things like that might fix everything because you read these articles i somebody sent me about 15 little examples of this yesterday is that americans cry out for structure it's uh, that these there was one article by the huffington post that said atheists are forming their own churches there's another article that said uh Why I'm an atheist and I still go to church, and there are a hundred different little articles about this. So I think people crave this structure, this order. And you know, I met with a professor from Notre Dame about a year and a half ago, and he talks to me about how in Minnesota there was like an atheist megachurch. What what is that? But no, Uh, and they basically have speakers come in, they talk about something secular, they still sing songs and do all that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, why don't these people go to church? And it goes back to the thing I talked about before, is because we haven't proven God. Or in many cases, and this usually isn't our church, the other church shall remain nameless, but we often get a lot of people who have been hurt by other churches, who have been cast out, who have been rejected. I'm not saying that's the denomination's fault. It's the way certain people interpret the message of Jesus Christ. And I believe, and obviously I'm a Methodist, of course I believe it, is that we, our message of love and grace, three different types of grace that John Wesley talked about, is paramount bringing everyone in the door is very important to me and so i think honestly that if we slimmed out our bureaucracy did more advertisement and proved to these people the existence of god that we would end up in a much better place than a lot of these other denominations who are either focusing on old methods that don't work or in focusing on exclusionary methods which aren't compatible with the spirit of the age and those who are only focused on secularizing to just become normal. And so I think the church needs to remember that it's special because it has the only pathway to salvation. And I think people can be guided to that way. And I think now on the Westland quadrilateral, now is the era of reason. Reason, reason, reason. It's all about that right now. And so honestly, I think the organization's great. I just think it needs to be slimmed down.
0: It's interesting that you say that now is the era of reason. I would have said that now is the era of experience, but maybe we've moved past that. You know, there's, there's enough of a generational difference between you and I that maybe my generation was focused on experience and yours is indeed focused on reason. And our churches are not designed to um, meet that need or, or, or meet people where they are in asking those kinds of questions.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that
1: partially it's because, and I've heard many, many a sermon, not not just here, but, you know, just around just uh, podcasts, interviews, anything else like that. And I've heard a lot of stories and I think, you know, I love these stories and they relate to me very well. However, if I was an atheist, nothing, it would all bounce off because it's not, doesn't apply to me because I don't believe X, I think now is the era of reason and experience in that order. For example, we have to get the reason first, and then we can share these stories, and then we can share these experiences, and they will have the full impact. Because uh, between the millennials and between your generation, I think you're the Lashkey generation. I can't remember what the official
0: name is. But I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm millennial. 34. 34.
1: Oh, yeah, you are a millennial. I, I forget how long that era goes. But either way, the millennials... Uh, in your generation, uh, a lot of people still have the baseline for believing in God because they believe in other supernatural things originally, such as you know, uh, you know, astrology or anything else like that. But in my generation, it's just you know, everything's fake. That's the that's the conviction of my generation. So it's easier to bring people in the door with experiences in your generation, but for my generation, it's all you know. I don't believe X because I haven't seen it, or I don't believe Y because it hasn't been proven to me. It needs to be personalized. It needs to be specialized. As soon as you get that in, logic, and the logic, I believe, is the key step, but it's also shallow in my opinion. Because if you prove it to them logically, they know it, but they don't feel it. And then after that, you have to make them feel it after knowing it. So I would agree that experience is still very important, but I'd go reason, then experience. Convince them, and then convince them some more.
0: I love that. Gabe, what gives you hope as you look to the future?
1: What gives me hope as I look to the future is that I know that whatever happens, uh, we always have the church. We always have God. We always have our faith. We always have our community and our salvation. But also what gave me hope, especially this year at campus, that how ready they were, how ready young people were to listen to the argument and to listen to the proof that God is real. You know, people said to me, you know, I had questions about God, but proving him logically makes so much more sense. And I was thinking, I'm happy about that. And, you know, other things there, and other people can connect emotionally. And I was very happy to watch the whole thing, but what gives me hope is that I don't think the battle is lost. I still think the church has the opportunity and the time, as long as we seize it quickly, to get Generation Z to be the generation that goes back into church, to get them to be the generation that refills the pews, as it were. Uh, So that's what gives me
0: hope. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I feel like we are on the brink, we are on the cusp of another great awakening right now. And I think that um, too many churches have sought to adapt the message of the gospel while keeping their methods the same. They're still doing church as if it were 1950, but have watered down the gospel in an effort to reach new folks. And like the gospel, I mean, that's what it's all about. That's gold. That's what makes us the church and different from any other organization in the entire world. Like that is the truth that has been preserved for all generations, but how we present it, uh, what methods we lean into, um, that's what needs to continually adapt again and again and again. And um, talking with you today, Gabriel, I am just inspired and convicted of how much we need to adapt yet again, Even stuff that worked five years ago, three years ago, doesn't work today. And we need to be continually reinventing not the gospel message, but rearticulating it for new generations.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the church, after it does that, needs to stay. I don't want to say stay put because it needs to change a little bit, but I think it was uh, St. Francis who said, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, way back in the day. Uh, it might have been him, but it might have been someone else. But I know this quote that says, A church that is uh, wed to one idea in one generation will be widowed in the next. So it's important that our message is transcendent. And I think. That if we get that message, I agree that because we've been jumping to these different ideas every five, three years, that they become outmoded very quickly. But I think we've plateaued again. I think the generation coming up after Generation Z, it still has these little supercomputers in their back pocket, and that will be—that is now the dominant force. Now the defining generational factor is these little magic bricks that we have; these little magic picture-taking bricks, and they will be there forever.
0: any concluding words of wisdom for our listeners today?
1: Uh, My concluding words of wisdom are, keep the faith, keep strong, and try to reach out to everyone.
0: Gabriel, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It is really and truly a joy to be the church with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. God bless you.
0: That concludes this episode of Church Folks. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about Birmingham and Berkeley First on our websites, fumcbirmingham.org and berkeleyfirst.org. Take some time this week to share your story, listen to the stories of others, and look for those points of intersection with the greatest story ever told, the continually unfolding story of God's love in Jesus Christ. Peace.